good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are tuning into this episode of Focus on Facts. I'm Eric Sussman and glad to be joining you once again to discuss a topic which seems to be on everyone's mind these days. No, not Jewish space lasers or whether Chris Harrison should remain as the host of The Bachelor or Bachelorette or even on a more serious note, the freezing weather down in Texas. And I sure hope that any of you that are impacted by that situation are okay. But today I want to focus on housing and specifically housing affordability and homelessness. Now, when I mention the word housing, I imagine that any number of questions or issues enter your minds. Will I or we ever be able to afford a home? Why do housing prices and rents never seem to go down? Is this a good time to buy? What's going to happen if interest rates go up? Why are there so many of those damn Californians moving to my town and will they ever stop coming with all their money and liberal politics? Why are there so many homeless and homeless encampments everywhere? What can we do about that? These are some extremely weighty questions and I don't think I can unpack and address all of them in a single podcast or perhaps even two or three of them. In fact, I imagine this will be the first of many podcast episodes that touch on housing and housing-related issues. But I'd like to spend some time, and the time we do have, to walk through some of my thoughts about housing, my views looking forward, and certain policy and regulatory changes that ought to be made, if have to be made, to make housing more affordable and to reduce homelessness. I know that owning a house, you know, the three-bedroom kind with a manicured lawn and a white picket fence is part of the American dream and was actually the name of a case I used in my MBA elective courses for years. In fact, when I Googled American dream and I read the very first link that came up, it defined the term as the, quote, belief that anyone, regardless of where they were born or what class they were born into, can attain success, end quote. And then below that principal definition, it actually mentions that, quote, Home ownership and education are often seen as paths to achieving it, end quote. So there you have it. Home ownership is somehow woven into our collective psyches, our DNA, an embodiment of the American dream. And if we fail to achieve that home ownership milestone, we will somehow have fallen short. Well, late last week, the New York Times published an article, The Californians Are Coming, So Is Their Housing Crisis, which noted that in places like Boise, Idaho, single-family home prices rose 20% last year. Residents blame Californians, and local politicians are actually running on platforms, which include slogans like, Go Back to California. These attitudes are not confined to Boise, but are now commonly expressed in many cities throughout the Southwest and the Sun Belt, from Phoenix to Denver to Salt Lake City to Austin to Atlanta. But as the Times rightfully points out, this is really not a California-driven problem, but a national one. And if you don't believe me and you have a few hours to spare, you can and should read this year's State of the Nation's Housing, published by the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard, available online. The report echoes many of the same themes from prior years, a lack of affordable housing and unequal access to home ownership that crisscrosses the entire country. And the report calls for, quote, comprehensive re-envisioning of national housing policy. In fact, I'm not sure this will make you feel any better, but similar issues are cropping up worldwide. Across the pond, Berlin has instituted a five-year freeze on residential rents. Yes, you heard that right. A five-year freeze on residential rents, essentially rent control on steroids. And 
From Spain to Toronto, renters and prospective home buyers are feeling the pinch of significantly higher home prices and rents. So trust me, Californians are clearly not the ones to blame. And so I thought the time was right to provide my own views on this timely and significant topic, if nothing else because real estate remains the single largest contributor to our country's gross domestic products, between 15 and 18 percent of our economic output each year. However, before we get too far, let's start with some facts about housing, as sobering as they might be. It's right about here in this podcast where you might want to grab that beer, scotch, or intoxicant of your choice, so long as you're not driving. And don't worry, I won't judge you whichever one you choose or don't. (laughs) Ready? Here goes. Over the past decade, median home prices in the U.S. have increased about 50%, while the median home price here in California is up over 70% during that same time frame. Meanwhile, median household income levels are up only about 15%, so the math is simple. Housing prices have not just been going up, but going up a lot faster than our ability to afford those higher prices. And what is the median home price in the U.S. today, you might ask? Well, it's about $350,000 up over 11% from last year. Now, I realize that those of you who live in L.A., San Francisco, New York, Miami, or Seattle, and elsewhere, thinking, you must be joking, Professor Sussman. $350,000 buys you something between jack and squat. True and fair enough, although... The corner of Jack and Squat is probably a very desirable location for all I know. Joking aside, the median home price in California is now more than twice the national average, exceeding $700,000. And in many parts of LA, San Francisco, or San Diego, the median exceeds seven figures, all to the left at the decimal point. So I would understand your perspectives. As shocking as it may sound to some of you, $2 million buys one a very modest home near the UCLA campus. So is it any wonder that according to the Federal Housing Administration, over a quarter of first-time home buyers throughout the U.S. rely on, quote, family assistance, basically gifts or loans from parents. And apartment rents? According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics, prices for rent of primary residents were up about 37% in 2020 versus 2010, and that's across the entire country. Keep in mind that this data is a bit skewed because in so many housing-constrained markets, you find some form of rent control or rent stabilization, which limit rental increases. In addition, these national figures can easily mask local or regional differences. For example, here in Los Angeles, rents went up some 65% during the last decade. As a result, over 30% of all renters, representing over 20 million households, pay more than 30% of their household incomes to meet rent obligations. Not surprisingly, the data on lower-income renters is far more sobering, as over 60% of households with incomes under $25,000 pay more than half of their incomes to cover the rent. Oh, and one last data point. Between 2000 and 2010, the share of federal expenditures for housing assistance fell from 9% of non-defense discretionary spending to just 7.1%, all while the number of cost-burden renters rose by 6 million people. Since then, the housing assistance share has increased marginally to 7.4%, but while the number of 
cost-burdened renters has barely retreated. The problem is that housing assistance is not an entitlement program, so nearly three out of every four very low-income households who qualify for federal housing assistance are unable to obtain the assistance that they need. Thus, the data speaks for itself, and just as the Times article concluded, it's not just a California problem. Housing prices and rents have simply been going up faster than real wages and household incomes across the entire country. Though, yes, Californians are moving out of the state and, yes, bringing their pocketbooks with them, so they are an easy and easily identifiable scapegoat. In fact, over 7.5 million Californians have left the state in just the last decade, and net migration from California has been negative every year during that time period. And indeed, they are headed to places from Boise to Phoenix to Vegas to Austin or to another southwest or sunbelt city near you. But the problem is deeper, and as we will discuss, it all boils down to that most basic of economic principles, demand and supply. Simply put, demand for housing has far outpaced supply over the past decade, causing prices and rents to increase. Correcting this imbalance is the only way to make housing more affordable, and that is going to take some serious political fortitude and the implementation of tough policy changes, as I will discuss later in the podcast. Meantime, before I go on, there are some bright spots worth mentioning. Rents in some markets have actually come way down over the last year, admittedly, as a result of COVID, so perhaps we should put these realities in the mixed emotions bucket, like watching your mother-in-law drive off the road in your new Tesla, but rents in parts of the Bay Area, New York City, Boston, Washington, D.C., and Seattle, those really housing-constrained markets are down double digits, and in some cases, more than 20% during the past year. There are something like 16,000 vacant apartments in New York City, as I talk, the most in 15 years. Here in Los Angeles County, rents are down roughly 6% over the past year. Mortgage rates hovered near record lows, with 30-year home loans now averaging around 2.8%. If you had told me that rates would be that low just five years ago, I would have suggested you get more sleep or lay off those intoxicants. And Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, has expressed the likelihood that low rates will persist through 2023 at least. Of course, some of you will respond that these low rates just mean that prices increase because people can afford more home, all else equal. And again, I can't argue with that logic. But lower rates do mean more people can afford to buy a home. And in fact, home ownership rates presently sit at around 68%, their highest levels in well over a decade, after hitting a low of around 63% in 2015. So net-net, that is a positive. With all this being said, how did we get into this housing pickle and situations where so many people can't afford to buy a home, are struggling to meet their rental obligations, or very sadly can't even afford to put a roof over their heads, notwithstanding the impact COVID has had? Well, before I answer this question, I'd like you to join me on a trip back in time. So let's take another dip in my hot tub time machine which has already gotten plenty of use in my first two podcasts. <laughs> Unfortunately, my Back to the Future DeLorean is in the shop and out of service. Anyhow, this time I would like to head back with you to 1950, a mere five years after the end of World War II. And I'd like you to imagine that you and I are flying over Los Angeles in a small airplane looking out the window. And what do we see? 
open swaths of land as far as the eye can see, mostly populated with orange groves and strawberry fields, if anything at all. In fact, one of my very favorite pictures is an aerial photo of Westwood, where UCLA is located, taken in the early 1930s. Again, open land, and you just can't help thinking yourself, geez, Louise, if I could just go back in time to buy some of that land. Unfortunately, our urban planners had no idea that Los Angeles County's population would grow from 2.2 million in 1930 to 4 million in 1950 to 12.5 million people this year. And land was not a concern at the time, so they permitted the construction of one low-rise, low-density housing project after another, all without providing for adequate and sustainable public transportation infrastructure. The next time you fly into LAX, and it's not 1950, grab a window seat and you will see the problem for yourself. Tremendous urban sprawl marked by low-density, single-family or low-rise residential housing, and Virtually no open land left. Oh, and a lot of traffic, at least in non-COVID times. So the question is, what now? The mountains and oceans create obvious impediments to land supply, and you can't just bulldoze all existing buildings to make way for high-rises because of everything from pesky economics to zoning to, again, that lack of public transportation infrastructure. However, while Los Angeles may be a poster child for the lack of urban planning foresight, it is really a problem that plagues much of the entire country. This sort of urban sprawl where the suburbs became the post-World War II American housing phenomenon, with the developing highway system, increasing popularity of cars, and land aplenty creating the catalyst for the sprawl. What's interesting is that the U.S. is unique in this regard, where people abandon the urban cores to live in the suburbs. In most cities around the world, wealthier residents live in higher-density urban cores. In fact, the United States is relatively unique in another really important way, in that land use is under local control, which leads to very wide variation in regulation across communities. Many other countries, including the UK and France, have national planning agencies and guidelines set by their central governments. This decentralized regulatory structure here in the U.S. regarding local land use, ranging from inconsistent building code requirements, differing limits on the number of units that can be delivered on any particular parcel of land, the parking requirements tied to any project, and on and on and on, materially impact construction costs as well as the time it takes to deliver projects to markets, especially those that so desperately need them, if these projects can be delivered at all. At the end of the day, the most critical solution our housing needs is to build more housing, to build higher density housing, all supported by public transportation infrastructure, while providing financial assistance to those who need it so that they are able to at least afford a basic level of housing. Sounds simple enough, but it will take money and lots of it, which we can afford if we are committed to do so. But the bigger challenge will be mustering the political will to take power away from local communities and decentralize zoning and land use regulations. And that is the problem. And it may simply be an intractable one. Look, once folks settle into their neighborhoods, they don't want more people to come. Existing homeowners do not want more affordable homes. They want the value of their homes to cost more and go up, not less and go down. 
They are not overjoyed by the additional people, noise, traffic, and demands on public resources that new housing inevitably attracts. They don't want the field of dreams, build it and they will come. More like, don't build it and stay the hell off my lawn. And so, local city councils in so many jurisdictions simply vote down proposed projects or simply make the permitting and approval process so cumbersome, so difficult, so time-consuming, and so costly that projects simply are unable to get off of the ground. And so we are left with two incredibly important acronyms that describe the problem very well, that people may say they would like housing to be more affordable and that they would like to build housing for the homeless, but just not in their neighborhoods. Friends of Focus on Facts meet the acronyms NIMBY and BANANA. NIMBY, not in my backyard, and BANANA, build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Now, politicians don't want it to look like they are doing something, so they do act, but how? Well, with what I refer to as economic sticks, the two principal examples being rent control and inclusionary zoning. Rent control regulations, wherever they are enacted, contain similar provisions, as many of you probably know. They establish limits on how much and when rent on certain residential units can be increased and allow tenants to remain in their units indefinitely upon expiration of the primary terms of their leases. When a tenant moves into a rent-controlled unit, agreeing to pay a particular initial rent, any future rental increases must conform with those allowed by the local governmental agency or commission charged with setting such rent increases. And provided a tenant agrees to pay this rent, they may remain in their units indefinitely. I will quite likely tackle the problems with rent control in a future podcast or two, but suffice it to say for now that it just doesn't work despite its laudable goals. Economists may not agree on much, but they nearly universally agree that rent controls do not achieve their goals, stable rents and increasing housing affordability. And inclusionary zoning This is a regulation very commonly found, including here in California, that requires developers to set aside a certain number of units, generally 20%, of all those residential units they build, designate them as affordable, meaning the rents charged will be capped well below market and those units will be rented only to certain individuals whose incomes do not exceed certain stipulated thresholds. While not an unreasonable policy on its face, these restrictions simply mean that fewer units are built overall because the economic returns don't justify them. Building affordable units costs just as much as market units, and in some cases actually more. Again, another topic for a future podcast. But with much lower rents attached to those affordable units, developers are only able to build fewer units overall. It's simple economics. Meanwhile, other regulations create impediments and add to costs. In a 2018 research paper, The Economic Implications of Housing Supply, authored by Ed Glazer and Joe Giorgio in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, something else to add to your reading lists, they found that in coastal metropolitan areas, including San Francisco, most projects proposed for housing drag on for years because of the environmental impact reviews required for many projects and other restrictive state and local regulatory hurdles. The broader point, which isn't 
remotely controversial is that California cities have some of the most restrictive building laws in the nation. And this is a big reason why the state's per capita home supply is 49th out of the 50 states and why it costs so much to live here. I can cite one very specific and timely example, SB 50, a California assembly bill which would have allowed more mid-rise apartment uh, complexes near transit and job centers while shifting the permitting process for these sorts of projects from local governments to the state. Well, it has now been voted down twice simply because local politicians and their constituents are not willing to cede power to the state, even though it would be a welcome change and a positive change in terms of housing affordability and homelessness, in my opinion. Is it any wonder that California is seeing less than 100,000 new apartment units built each year on average when we need two and a half times that amount to meet demand? But let's again be clear, California is not an only child. Many cities require that zoning changes meet strict local requirements. Minimum lot size restrictions are omnipresent in many jurisdictions. For example, many Boston suburbs require minimum lot sizes of over one acre. Many communities take their sweet time to approve permits, six months or more, even when the project complies with local zoning guidelines. Now, advocates of land use restrictions emphasize the negative consequences of building and density, and certainly new construction can and does lead to more crowded schools and roads, and it is costly to create new infrastructure to lower congestion. However, countless empirical studies conclude that these negative externalities, that's twice in two podcasts, or consequences are not nearly large enough to justify the costs of this excessive and burdensome regulation. If you want an anecdote as to how bruising these battles can be, look no further than Cupertino. Now, if you don't recognize that name, just look at the back of your favorite Apple device or the packaging in which it came as Apple is headquartered there. Cupertino, like all of Silicon Valley, has faced significant housing challenges in recent years. A local developer there proposed a very large residential project, specifically seven 22-story towers on the site of a mostly vacant shopping center. You can almost imagine the apoplectic response to the proposal from area residents who were not exactly keen on increasing residential density in the area. But here's the key. The project completely complied with local zoning ordinances and other city regulations. So, Cupertino's city council approved the project. Cue up the attorneys and let the lawsuits begin, which is exactly what has happened. Clearly, the wealthy local residents were not simply going to take things lying down and are now trying to quash the project altogether, or at least to reduce its footprint significantly. The upcoming drama may not meet this is us levels, but it will be contentious and the developer will likely have to scale down the project considerably or risk being tied up for some time in the California courts. They have my thoughts and prayers. Meantime, if you would like an additional anecdote to demonstrate how out of whack our housing markets are and how the public sector is shirking on its duties to help the cause, Look no further than to Google, Apple again, Facebook, and Amazon, four technology titans we all know well, which collectively have committed over $6 billion to acquire or construct affordable housing in their communities. 
I am not exactly sure how their commitments will translate to actions given market realities, but it does reflect how deep the housing challenges are. Tech companies are getting into residential housing development? Really? Some cities are being more proactive to address their housing challenges. In late 2019, Minneapolis eliminated single-family zoning designations, and other jurisdictions may soon follow suit, which would allow for more housing units to be built on a lot that was traditionally zoned for just one detached single-family residence. That's not going to solve the problem or cut it everywhere, but it's a start. What other factors are driving up housing prices and residential rents, creating the affordability gap so many potential homebuyers and tenants are experiencing, this imbalance between demand and supply? One, there is something like $10 trillion of equity in homes owned by baby boomers, folks born between the end of World War II and 1964. And these folks are simply not selling or moving, certainly not in the middle of a pandemic. Not when improved medical care and technology allows them to remain in their homes longer than in the past. And not when Uncle Sam and state taxing authorities are licking their chops awaiting for these baby boomers to sell their homes, knowing that a big old capital gains tax bill awaits them. Two, over the past decade, there has been a tremendous growth in institutional home rental firms like Invitation Homes, American Homes for Rent, Tricon Residential, and Roostock, companies which many of us probably have never heard of, but these are institutions that are buying hundreds of millions of dollars of new homes each quarter and renting them out. This particular type of buyer did not even exist a decade ago, and now you may be competing with them and their huge balance sheets and buying wherewithal. Three, the U.S. needs to build approximately 4.6 million new apartment units by 2030, or something like 328,000 units per year just to keep up with anticipated demand. However, between 2011 and 2018, developers only built an average of 250,000 units per year. The story is similar with single-family homes. A lack of supply of buildable lots, high land and infrastructure costs, Volatile material prices and everything from lumber to copper to steel to brass. Challenging labor markets with freezes on immigration. And yes, for sure, excessively lengthy entitlement processes and regulations discussed earlier create a really lousy concoction, resulting in a significant gap between how much housing is needed and how much is being built everywhere. And so the reality is sobering. Those of you waiting for housing prices and rents to fall will likely be waiting for Godot. I simply don't see the demand-supply imbalance correcting itself soon. Meanwhile, substantial liquidity presently sitting on the sidelines, some $16 trillion in U.S. bank accounts alone, strong stock markets, and low mortgage rates are providing really strong foundational supports for all asset prices, including single-family homes. As a result, trends that we have all witnessed from this domestic diaspora, like the sound of that, from the coasts further inland, increasing wealth inequality, declines in fertility rates, and record numbers of young adults cohabitating with their 
parents are all likely to continue looking forward and in part result from our national housing problems. So is the situation hopeless? What can be done? What should politicians be doing? Because ultimately they hold the keys literally and figuratively to our housing issues. So let's take a breath and walk through some policy recommendations that should be undertaken to address our housing challenges. And let me be clear about my biases. I firmly believe that providing adequate, secure, and affordable housing is important and something that the United States, as the richest nation on the planet, should strive to achieve. I also believe that the gap between the haves, the have-nots, and the homeless has gotten out of hand, threatens our country's stability, and is actually partly to blame for increasing social unrest that we have all witnessed. So here goes. One, as politically challenging as it might be, we must transfer power from local governments when it comes to approving residential housing projects. This authority should be placed in the hands of an independent, nonpartisan, state-level centralized agency that is not so easily swayed by local political winds and whims. With the following guidelines. If a proposed residential housing project complies with local zoning rules and regulations, approval should be granted automatically and quickly within 21 days and any legal challenges contesting such approvals should be summarily dismissed with significant statutory monetary sanctions assessed against attorneys and parties engaging in frivolous efforts to stymie these projects. So in our earlier Cupertino example, those wealthy Cupertino residents and their lawyers who are using the courts to challenge Cupertino City Council's appropriate approval would simply be unable to do so. For other residential housing projects that are over 100 units and in any submarket with a vacancy rate of 5% or less, but are not in compliance with local zoning regulations, there should be an accelerated review process for such projects. Developers would need to submit documentation clearly setting forth how their projects are not in compliance with zoning regulations and why their projects should be approved nevertheless. Two, as opposed to widespread application of economic sticks, namely rent control and inclusionary zoning we discussed earlier, governments at all levels should rely far more heavily on economic carrots, incentivizing developers to construct more units and more affordable units where lower rents will not preclude projects from being economically viable. These carrots could include things like accelerated depreciation schedules and favorable, that is, lower interest rate, government-funded or sponsored fixed-rate long-term financing for affordable housing projects. Or perhaps a developer might receive tax credits or lower tax rates tied to rents that are received from certain lower-income tenants. Basically, if developers can ultimately receive the same or similar economic returns by leasing units to lower-income tenants at below market rents because of certain tax benefits they would receive by doing so, 
That would certainly make rental housing more affordable. Finally, need-based programs to help subsidize rents for those who require financial assistance can and should be created and or expanded. Remember how I mentioned earlier that 75% of very low-income families who qualify for federal assistance don't actually receive help because housing subsidies are not considered an entitlement. I believe that needs to change. The federal government's Housing and Urban Development's Section 8 program is one such example of a program that can and should be expanded. While that program may have issues, it is needs-based and allows landlords to achieve market rents for their units. In that program, low-income tenants pay 30% of market-level rents while the federal government pays the remainder, the 70%. The problem is that, as I mentioned earlier, the program remains vastly underfunded. Obviously, economic carrots must be paid for, and in times of budget austerity at all levels of government, this won't be easy or cheap. But tough economic choices never are, and if policymakers and constituents alike are really serious about making housing more affordable, making it more plentiful and available, and reducing the level of homelessness, we will all need to muster the political will and capital to do so. It is really the only way that we can make housing more affordable while reducing homelessness. We can and must do better, all while realizing this is a national and a collective problem. So we all need to do our part. And with that, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Focus on Facts. And I wish each and every one of you a very good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are listening in. I hope to reconnect with you again in very short order. So in the meantime, take care and be well. Thanks again. 